0: You know, the Gospel of Luke, though, begins with introduction, after introduction, after introduction, after introduction. You notice this if you've been with us on Sunday mornings, maybe in your own reading of the Gospel of Luke. Luke, writing as a beloved physician, but also writing as a historian of the first order, wants to make very, very sure to everyone who will read his account of the life of Jesus, that Jesus of Nazareth was very clearly introduced and very clearly identified. Look at these introductions. He's introduced, first of all, by the angel Gabriel back in chapter 1. He's introduced to Zacharias, who will be the father of John the Baptist, who will be the predecessor of Jesus. Gabriel actually uh, introduces, in a way, the fact of the coming of Jesus to his own mother, Mary. She is told that she will be the mother of the Son of God. Jesus is introduced by the angels on the night of his birth to those shepherds. Remember that beautiful, beautiful scene? And then eight days later, when he is taken to the temple for his dedication... He is introduced by that aged man, Simeon, who takes him in his arms and identifies him again for his mother and his father and for all the worshipers that are nearby. And then, nearly 30 years later, John the Baptist introduces Jesus. As during his preaching campaign, he is sharing the message the people should prepare for the way of the Lord. They should prepare for the one who was coming. And he introduced Jesus to them by baptizing him in the Jordan River. And what an introduction also took that place that day, an introduction like no other. What happened? The Holy Spirit introduced Jesus. How? By coming upon him in the form of a dove. And God the Father introduced his Son, speaking from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Somebody else heard that introduction and identified Jesus, and that was Satan. And we saw last week, and in chapter 4, where we are this morning, verses 1 through 13, as Satan himself identifies Jesus and tempts him and tests him. But now, in this passage that Joe's read for us this morning, what a moment. A moment like any none other. Why? Because, listen carefully, Jesus introduces himself. For the first time, Jesus introduces and identifies himself. Yes, what a moment it is, as I want you to see this morning from this passage. It is a moment of truth. The moment of truth as Jesus introduces himself. Now, where does this take place? It takes place in his hometown, Nazareth, where he has lived for nearly 30 years. It not only takes place in his hometown, it takes place in his own place of worship, his synagogue, where he has attended faithfully throughout his life. He is in the synagogue where he has taught, where he has worshipped. His neighbors are there who know him well. Childhood friends who have grown up with him. Imagine even some of his family members, no doubt, are there. Relatives. And Jesus chooses this moment, in this place, in his hometown, in his home place and spot of worship, to introduce himself and identify himself. Now, I want you to notice this morning, there are three things that Jesus identifies as he introduces himself, and identifies not just himself, but also his audience and those that will follow after him. First of all, he identifies himself. Secondly, he identifies his enemies. And thirdly, he identifies his disciples. That's what I want us to see in this moment of truth, in the synagogue, in this hometown of Nazareth. Notice, first of all, Jesus identifies himself. And again, what a moment this is. He shares with his family. He shares with his friends. He shares with his neighbors that he is God's Messiah. That he is God's Messiah. The passage that he chooses for reading is one of the most beloved of the prophecies of Messiah. It's found in our Bibles in Isaiah chapter 61. Isaiah, the great prophet of the Messiah, he has the greatest prophecies of Messiah. Jesus chooses one of those most beloved passages from Isaiah. But before he reads that passage... It's important for you to know another passage that Isaiah wrote about this moment. Isaiah wrote about it several times. Not just the passage that Jesus quoted, but he also, Isaiah, wrote about it this way. In chapter 9 of Isaiah, verses 1 and 2, it says this, But in the latter time. He has made glorious the way of the sea. That is the road up the coast of the north of Israel. The land beyond the Jordan. The Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness. Have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness. Darkness on them, the light has shined. Now, notice he calls it a land of deep darkness and he identifies it as Galilee of the nations. Jesus was from Galilee, the region of the north of Israel, and it was Galilee of the nations. It was called why? Because something terrible happened about 800 years before Jesus read this text in the synagogue. In 722 BC, the Assyrians raided with their huge army the land of Israel. And they took into captive the ten tribes of the north of Israel leaving only two behind, Judah. They took away the ten tribes into captivity. They left just a few people to take care of the land. But then here's what the Assyrians did. They brought in to take the place of the Israelites that they had carried off. They brought in foreigners from around their empire. Some of these foreigners intermarried with some of the Jewish people there. And eventually they became known as the Samaritans. They had a half pagan, half Jewish religion. But many, many of the Gentiles which were brought in continued their pagan worship, their pagan lifestyle. And they had been in the land with their descendants for nearly 800 years by the time Jesus came. So when Jesus was raised up in Nazareth, it was just a small town of about 400 people. But it was surrounded, surrounded by throngs of pagan worshipers. It was an incredible mixture of cultures and religions. There were enclaves of Jewish people, faithful, yes... To the things of the Lord. But they were living in the midst of the Goyim. The nations. The Gentiles. It's estimated that there were between one and three million people who lived in Galilee. So the next time you see a movie that shows Jesus coming out of nowhere. With a few sun-baked followers out in the desert that is completely foreign to the culture in which Jesus was born and began his ministry. Jesus was born in the midst of a multicultural, multilingual, lingual, multi-religious environment. He was raised as an orthodox Jewish man in the midst of surroundings that were filled with paganism. Galilee of the nation. It was just a crossroad of cultures. A clash of cultures. What a moment this is now when Jesus announces who he is. Jesus is coming back as somewhat of a hometown hero. You understand? He's just started his ministry, but already his fame has gone before him. People are hearing about this teacher... From Nazareth. This carpenter from Nazareth. There's a power upon him. There's an anointing upon him. There's even testimonies of him healing people in the region. And now for the first time, he comes back home. He's sort of the hometown boy made good. And they're really glad that he's come. They're glad to have him come and fill the pulpit that day. They're glad to have him come and speak. They're excited about it. Jesus chooses, of all passages, this passage. Imagine the scene. You're sitting there with with great decorum. They bring out a a portion of the scroll of Isaiah. They, They roll it out. And Jesus finds a place where... This quotation from Isaiah 61 is found. He reads this prophecy of the Messiah. This announcement of the Messiah. And then he pauses for effect. Everyone in that small synagogue are transfixed upon him. And he is looking at them, and after a long pause, he says, Today, in your hearing, this prophecy has been fulfilled. This is quite a moment, isn't it? Today, in your hearing, this prophecy has been fulfilled. What is he saying? I am fulfilling this prophecy. I am the Messiah of God. I mean, try to imagine this. Again, it's helpful to imagine it. Imagine sitting there. You're you're his neighbors. You've known him for years. You've got furniture in your house that he has made. You maybe grew up with him. Played with him as a child. Your friends. Maybe he's your cousin. He might be your brother. And he's saying he is the Messiah. This is a moment. He says he's God's Messiah. The anointed one. And he is God's messenger. He says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim a message. Do you see that? A message to proclaim. And what is the message that he proclaims as God's messenger? Look at verse 18. It is a message of God's kindness. He brings a message of God's kindness. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. He stops there. He's bringing a message of God's kindness. Kindness for whom? The most needy of society. Who is Jesus identifying with here? Do you see who he's identifying with? He says he's Messiah, but he's not identifying with the elite. He's not identifying with the movers and shakers. He's not identifying with any denomination of rabbis. No, he identifies with the most needy. Emotionally, physically, socially, he identifies with them. He says, I have come with a message for the poor, for the captives, for the blind, for the oppressed. That's who he identifies with. And he's speaking not just to those with physical and emotional oppression, but most of all, spiritually oppressed people who know and sense how far they are from God and their lives seem hopeless. He brings a message of God's kindness. Isn't it a wonderful thing that when Jesus revealed his father, he revealed him as kind. Aren't you glad? He brought a message of God's kindness, but in particular, It's a message of God's grace. Look at verse 19, if you will. Verse 19. He says that he has come to proclaim what? The year of the Lord's favor. That word favor is the same expression for grace. He says, I have come... To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now listen carefully, church. We read this and it passes by us fairly quickly. But any Jewish person and all the people in that synagogue that morning, they knew immediately what Jesus was referring to. When he refers to the year of God's favor, he's using the language associated with the celebration of the year of Jubilee. You remember how the Jewish calendar was set up? Seven days, resting on the Sabbath day. Seven years in a religious cycle. And every Sabbath of seven years, that is every 49th year brought the 50th year of the year of Jubilee. The 50th year was a year of Jubilee, and it was a year of jubilation. Why? Because on the year of Jubilee, the debtors were released from all their debts. How many of you would look forward to that year coming? On the year of Jubilee, you were released from your debts. On the year of Jubilee, the disenfranchised got their land back. The land that had been sold by their families, it came back to them in the year of the Jubilee. The depressed were given hope. It's a new beginning. I have a new phase in my life. And those who were needing deliverance, most of all, the slaves were set free. The servants were set free in the year of Jubilee. That's the year that Jesus is talking about. It's the year of the Lord's favor But he's using it here not about the literal year of Jubilee, but the fulfillment of what the year of Jubilee represented. That there was coming a year from God, there was coming a day from God when people would be free, people would be delivered, oppression would be over. It's the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus says, I've come to proclaim it. I've come to bring it. The year of God's favor. Now, friend, listen carefully. The year of God's favor is not one year. It's not 365 days. It means an age of God's favor. It means an age of God's grace. And what Jesus proclaimed that morning in Nazareth is still true today We are living in the age of God's grace. This is the age of grace. It's not come to an end. There's still hope. There's still deliverance. There's still renewal. There's still opportunity. There's still life real and full of peace and joy offered from the Lord. We are living in the day of grace. This is a day of God's grace. Existed for 2,000 years. But now notice something. This is very interesting, and you don't want to miss it. The age of God's favor and grace is not timeless on this earth, it has lasted for 2,000 years, but it is not timeless. There is a day when the day of God's favor and grace will come to an end. And this is amazing. As Jesus quotes Isaiah 61, he stops his quotation in mid-sentence. If you've never seen this before, you might want to see it. Turn in your Bible to Isaiah 61. This is what Jesus is quoting. But notice how he quotes it. Very deliberately, he stops where Isaiah didn't stop. He pauses. Why? For this reason. Isaiah 61, verse 1. Listen to the passage that Jesus quoted. Isaiah 61, verse 1. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, To proclaim liberty to the captives. And the opening of the prison to those who are bound. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Stop. That's where Jesus stopped. As he was reading the scriptures, he stopped where no one else would stop. But he knew as Messiah, he had to stop there because he was opening the year of God's favor. But that age won't last forever because there's another age. Look at it again. Verse 2 of Isaiah 61. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of our God. Nobody but God knew there were 2,000 years between those two statements. Between... The year of God's favor, where Jesus stopped his quotation. And the day of the vengeance of our God has been 2,000 years. Because no one understood that the Messiah was coming, first of all, not to be a physical deliverer of his people, but the spiritual deliverer of his people. And not just his people, but all the nations of the earth who would come to him. But there would come a time when the day of God's favor would be over. And there will come this day, as sure as you're here this morning, the day of the vengeance of our God. Jesus said, the Son of Man himself is coming in the clouds. The book of the Revelation says he's coming on a white horse. He's not coming humble, Jesus, meek and mild. He's coming as the Holy One of God, King of kings and Lord of lords. He's coming to bring vengeance on his enemies, to conquer those that oppose him and to establish his kingdom on this earth. He is coming, my friend. I saw a bumper sticker one time. I never could find out where to get one for myself. It said, Jesus is coming again, and boy, is he mad. (laughs) The day of judgment, he brought a word of warning. Why? Because there were people there who needed to be warned. He loves these people. Do you think Jesus doesn't love this congregation? These are his family members, his friends, his loved ones. And he reveals to them that he has come to bring salvation, peace, deliverance. The day of God's favor. But he also knows that some of them are his enemies. And they need to understand that they're enemies to this grace of God. They're not part of it yet. Jesus identifies his enemies you know Jesus had enemies? Do you know that Jesus has enemies? He does. It may surprise you who his enemies were. Where his first enemies showed themselves. Not among the Romans. Not in the temple, not in the Sanhedrin in Jerusalem. His enemies were revealed in his own hometown, in his own home place of worship. What is the character of Jesus' enemies? How do you know an enemy of Jesus? What is the character of Jesus' enemies? Well, look, at, it may surprise you. Who are his enemies here? First of all, there are people who knew him. They knew him. Again, they're his neighbors, his lifelong companions. They're even some of his family members. But they do not believe for a moment what he's saying. They're stunned by it. And they've heard rumors that he actually is, is being called the Messiah. But now here he is, right in their presence, right where they have met with him for years, saying that he is the Messiah. They know him, but they don't know him. Do you know it's possible to know somebody and not really know them? That's what happened to Jesus. Here's what John said, who wrote the Gospel of John. He said it this way. He came unto his own... And his own received him not. Make sure you understand that verse. That first word own means his own things. His own things. That means he came into his own creation. He came into things that he himself had made as the creator. And his own people. That's the second word own means his own people did not receive him. The Jewish people did not receive him. The people of his hometown, even of his own synagogue, even of his own family were told they did not receive him. At this time, they were still his enemies. What is the old quote, my friend? And there's truth in it. Familiarity breeds what? Contempt. Familiarity builds contempt. They did not know him. And then when he said who he was, guess what? They said in their hearts, we don't want him. We don't want him. They were blind to him. His enemies were blind to him. Oh, they admired him. You notice what? They admired him. They admired his ability. Look at verse 22. And they all spoke what? Well of him. And they marveled at his gracious words. He was a very compelling speaker, our Savior. And they marveled at him. He was well-known and well-esteemed and he was well-spoken and he was very capable with the scriptures. They admired his ability, but they did not acknowledge his identity. They admired his ability, but they would not acknowledge his identity. And my friend, that is unchanged over the centuries. People admire Jesus, but they don't acknowledge him. Religions worldwide admire Jesus, but don't acknowledge him. Islam admires Jesus says he is a great prophet the greatest of the prophets except for Muhammad Islam admires Jesus Buddhism admires Jesus he is a great example Hinduism admires Jesus saying he is one of the gods of the millions of gods Mormonism admires Jesus, saying he is the greatest of the sons of God. He is the greatest of the sons of God. And that is what Mormonism teaches. Jehovah's Witnesses teaches that he is a son of God, but he's not God the Son. Admiring Jesus, but not acknowledging Jesus. But my friend, listen carefully, church, this morning. And you examine your own heart with what I'm about to say. The most tragic admiration of Jesus, but the rejection of acknowledgement of Jesus is in counterfeit Christianity being carried out in tens of thousands of congregations around this world this very day. Millions of people deluded by a Christianity that is a counterfeit Christianity. Which says that Jesus is a savior. He is a way of salvation. But he's not the savior. He's not the Lord. He is not the only way. He is not the only truth. He is not the only life. That is counterfeit Christianity. Because the founder of Christianity, Jesus Christ said, I, and I alone, am the way, the truth, the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. That is what Jesus said. My friend, listen carefully. He is Messiah and Master. Messiah and Master. He is either both or He is neither. He is either your Messiah and your Master or He is not your Messiah. He's not your Lord. He's not your Savior. Put out of your mind this idea that you accept Jesus as your Savior. You get your ticket to heaven and then you live as you want the rest of your life. That is counterfeit demonic Christianity. You do not make Jesus Lord. He is Lord. You may not understand all about his lordship. But no one who has truly come to faith in Jesus takes just a piece of him. Enough to get to heaven but not live for him here on earth. That's counterfeit Christianity. Why were these people his enemies? They were blind to him. Why were they blind to who he was? (laughs) Listen, why would the poor in spirit get in on this? Why would the broken get on this? Why would the captives and and the people depressed and without hope get in on this? But these people are not going to get into the kingdom as they are. Why? Because they were blind to themselves. Notice what they said, verse 22. Is not this Joseph's son? Is not this Joseph's son? And he said to them, Doubtless you will quote to me this proverb, Physician, heal yourself. What we have heard you that you did at Capernaum, do it here in your hometown as well. Hey, we are your homies. We're your homies. Who do you think you are? We know your daddy. Who do you think you are and who do you think we are? They were so self-focused, they were blinded to their need. Self-blinded. So what did Jesus do? In love. Jesus does this in love. He has to show them who they really are. He has to show them the condition of their heart. He has to show them how far they are from God. And how does he do that? He tells them two stories from their own history, but they've never applied it like he's applying it. Verse 24. He said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth, I tell you, there were many widows in Israel. Circle the words, in Israel, in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land, and Elijah was sent to none of them. But only to Zarephath, Zarephath, where is that? Galilee of the nations, the pagans, in the land of Sidon. Who was the queen of the Sidonians? Jezebel. To a woman who did not know God, was not of the people of God. She's a Gentile. She's the only widow to whom Elijah was sent. Things are getting a little uncomfortable. Jesus is just getting warmed up. He says there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha. Elisha succeeded Elijah. And not one leper in Israel was healed by Elisha. Only Naaman the Syrian. The enemy of God's people, the general of the Syrian forces, was healed from his leprosy when he was told to dip himself seven times in the Jordan River. How did this go over? Hometown, friends, family, neighbors. How does it go over? It goes over like this. Verse 28 When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with. Wrath. Filled with wrath. Why? Why were they so filled with wrath? Listen carefully. Because Jesus told them, listen up, you're not special. You're not special. Understand what Jesus is saying. You do not get a ticket because you are a descendant of Abraham. You are in need of grace just as much as that Sidonian woman. You are as in need of grace as that pagan Syrian Naaman. You are as without merit before God in your self-righteousness as that leprous, pagan, Syrian general, Naaman. That's what Jesus was saying. He's saying you're not special. As a matter of fact, you're self-deceived. Thinking that you're in the kingdom because you're in a nation. You're in the kingdom because you're in a tribe. You're in the kingdom because you're in a building. You think that is what it means. And these good people, these good people of Nazareth, what was their response to the sinless preacher? Not a selfish preacher. The sinless preacher, the only sinless one there's ever been, I'll guarantee you. Preaching to them the truth in love. What was their response? Amen, brother? Come on. Praise Jehovah? No. Verse 28, they heard these things, they were filled with wrath. They rose up and drove him out of the temple. They laid hands on Jesus, out of the synagogue. They laid hands on him. They dragged him through the streets to the brow of the hill on which their city was built. And they were going to throw him off the cliff. I have stood on that cliff. I have looked out over that valley of Jezreel from that precipice outside of Nazareth. And let me tell you, they sling you off this, you're a goner. An incredible rage came upon these people because Jesus held up a mirror to them. He let them see That they were filled with self-righteous religion. And how was it revealed? By racial hatred. They hated the Gentiles. And they couldn't wait for for Messiah to slaughter them by multitudes. They hated the Gentiles. They hated the lepers. They were full of religious, self-religious hatred. And when somebody like Jesus held up a mirror, it erupted. Friend, let me tell you something. Listen, Listen, church. There is no hatred like religious hatred. And there is no hatred like false, graceless Christianity. They were filled with hatred. They tried to throw Jesus over a cliff. You know what you learn here? (laughs) You can't stop Jesus. We don't even know what it means. We're not even told what it means. Verse 30 but passing through their midst, he went away. We don't know if he stunned them. We don't know if he was beamed up and beamed out. We don't know if he went into another dimension. Where is he? Where is he? I had, I, we don't know what happened. But Jesus wasn't going to die by a mob. He's going to die on a cross. Nobody was going to take his life from him because he'd come to lay it down. Who are we as his disciples? You want to know where you are in this and where I am? I tell you where you are you are the leper and you are the widow who has been graced by the kindness and goodness of God. You have been made whole. You who were, we were without, we've been brought near. We who had no claims on Christ, He's claimed us. We who were so far away, He's brought us near. We who were so dirty, He's washed us in His own precious blood, healed us from our leprous sinfulness, made us His children. That's who we are. We're miracles of grace. If you're a Christian, friend, listen. It's a miracle of grace. Don't ever lose the wonder of it all. And now you're a messenger of grace. You're a messenger of grace. We were once starving like the widow. Now what we can do now? We can tell people the bread of life. We were once in our sin rotting away. And we can tell people they can be made whole in the blood of the Lamb. We are Messiah's messengers. Can you believe that? I'm talking about us. Look around. Us who have been by God's grace alone brought to know this is the year of God's favor, His grace, and not by works of righteousness which I have done, but according to His mercy, He will save me. He will wash me with regeneration. He will give me the renewal of His Holy Spirit. Oh, friend, that is the grace of the Lord. That's the good news. You feel far from God? You feel like you could never come to Him? Oh, friend, hear me. You don't know how close you are. He came for you. But dear friend... If you're sitting here in your smug satisfaction that you've appeased God by another Sunday in church or another few shekels in the offering and you've tipped your hat for a few minutes so that you can live your life the way you want to and still go to heaven, friend, I will encourage you to be very, very concerned about the state of your soul. But it's the day of grace. (coughs) Lord, hear our prayer. This is the year of the Lord, the year of your grace. Thank you for these dear people now. And I pray, oh God, open our hearts. I pray, oh God, for any who has felt anger rising up in their heart to this message. Oh God, I am not the perfect messenger, but it's your message. Let them see that our hope is not in ourselves, nothing we can do. Our works are filthy rags, but Christ is perfect righteousness. Our hope is not in ourselves, it's in Christ. And I pray that every person in the sound of my voice this morning will run to Jesus if they've not run already. Run to Jesus right now in their darkness and in their brokenness. Run and claim the day of God's favor through His anointed one, Jesus Christ, the blessed Savior. May they fall before Jesus, confessing themselves as sinners, and confessing Him as Lord and Savior, and Lord, You will save them today. Thank You. May that be the reality of every heart and life here today, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen and amen.